So there was a preacher who was uh, preaching about temperance and the dangers of alcohol, and at the end of his talk, he became really passionate, and he said, if I had all the beer in the world, I would take it and throw it in the river. If I had all the wine in the world, I would take it and throw it in the river. If I had all the whiskey in the world, I would take it and throw it in the river. And with that, he sat down. And the service leader hesitated. There was a, a long pause. And, and finally, the man who was leading the service came up and he very cautiously announced and said, let's stand to sing our last hymn, Shall We Gather at the River? <laughs> so during this summer, we're, we're looking at a number of themes that run throughout Scripture. Last week we talked about the whole theme of covenant running through the Old Testament and New Testament, and this is what our, we're doing during the summer. Apart from on the 14th of August, we'll be doing something different with the, the Holiday Bible Club celebration service. But other than that, we're looking at these golden threads of meaning that run through the whole of Scripture. And today we're looking at the presence of God. How does the, how does the presence of God woven into the tapestry of Scripture? Where, where's the thread throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament? We experience the presence of God in all sorts of ways, and we were singing about it in that song a moment ago, the fact that He reassures us, the presence of God reassures us that we are children of God, that we are who He says we are. It's primarily about identity. It's primarily about the Holy Spirit as the one who cries out, Abba, Father. He's the one who stirs up a deep knowledge in our heads, in our hearts, in our beings that we are children of God. And the whole of Christian life flows from that. The whole of Christian life flows from a knowledge of the identity of being a, being a son or a daughter of God. He also reveals and brings peace and joy in our lives. He strengthens us in the midst of our weakness. He guides us, encourages us, corrects us, prompts us, and equips us for the call to follow Jesus. Often my clearest sense of the presence of God, the Lord is present in every believer, but in, in terms of being aware of the presence of God, for me so often that happens in the place of stillness and quietness, particularly in the morning just being still and quiet in the presence of the Lord and becoming increasingly gloriously aware of the sweetness of His presence. Sometimes in the midst of a worship gathering, there's also this profound and tangible sense as we gather together of the closeness of the Lord. And also we experience the Lord's presence in emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual healing. And so as we come to worship together, the Lord would love us to have this anticipation that we would experience life and healing, that we would experience emotional, physical, spiritual healing in our lives when we gather together in His presence, but also when we come to Him by ourselves, whether it's in a time of quiet prayer or at any time, in any place, any day. The Lord, of course, is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Genesis describes creation as being the place where the Lord's glory is on display. When Paul's writing 
to the church in Rome, he's saying, look, everybody should know that God is God just by looking around at creation. It's in creation that the Lord's glory is on display. And so Genesis is written in such a way that it's written like a, a narrative about the temple of God. And so creation is described as, as being like the building of a temple. And human beings, like the, the statues in a temple, that's the way Genesis in those opening chapters is constructed. It's basically describing what it looks like when creation is brought into being like a temple being built, and the final things to go into the temple are the statues that represent God Himself. And who are those statues? They are human beings. That's how we're to understand the opening chapters of Genesis. You and I are the living representations of what God is like. The second century, Bishop Irenaeus wrote, The glory of God is man fully alive, but the life of man is the vision of God. In other words, human beings can only be human beings fully in the presence of God. Who we're meant to be is God's vision, and therefore only in the presence of God can we be who we're called to be. Only can we be fully human in the presence of God. In the Garden of Eden, the depiction of heaven and earth, human beings and the Lord simply enjoy each other's presence. It's paradise because where the presence of the Lord is, there is abundant life. Tragically, human beings think they can do better. Paradise is lost, chaos and death ensue as unholy human beings go their own way, and are cast out of the holy presence of God. And there the story may well have ended, except for the fact that in the heart of God, there is this passionate desire for relationship. He made us not because He needed to make us, He made us because He loves to love. God is love, and so He created someone he could love human beings, you and me. That's why he made us. Last week, we rejoiced in our covenant-making God, who in the midst of this tragic circumstance of human beings saying, you know what? We can do better without you, God. I can be more fully human without you, God. That's what Genesis 3 is all about. And you and I know what that looks like in our day-to-day -day lives, all of us, silently, at times in our lives, probably frequently every day in our minds, if not verbally, we have times when we utter those words to God. You know what, God? I can do this myself. I don't need you for this one. And yet God, in His covenant commitment, meets a nomad called Abram in the desert, and he binds himself to him. How is God going to get back into relationship with the people he's created? He whispers to a nomad in the desert in the Middle East, and he says, Abram, I commit myself to you. 
And so we read about Abraham and his descendants, Moses, the people of Israel, David, and the people of the kingdom. And the story, the theme of the covenant that we rehearsed last week, and it's clear as we read the, the old covenant, the Old Testament, that things were not as they were in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, human beings just talked with God. They just hung out with God. In the cool of the evening, they went for a stroll with God. And yet, when Moses at the burning bush encounters God, the Lord says to him, Moses, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the wilderness, the people of Israel traveled with the tabernacle in their midst. At the time the tabernacle was completed, the Lord came to take up residence among this obscure, nomadic people in the desert. Exodus 40 describes the moment, then the cloud covered the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer even enter the tabernacle because the cloud had settled down over it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle, as we saw a number of months ago when we read the first five books of the Bible, had three main areas, the outer court, the holy place, and behind a thick curtain, the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant sat. And for the people of Israel, this was the epicenter of God's presence among them. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the Hillisterian as it was known, the mercy seat, the place where heaven touched earth, the footstool of God, the place where the mercy of God met the people of God. And so when the, the temple was built by Solomon and finished about 1000 BC, Solomon prayed a prayer of dedication. The temple was built in the same layout as the tabernacle. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. Then all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple. They fell face down on the ground and worshipped the Lord, saying, He is good. His faithful love endures forever. When the presence of God turns up, everyone there knows it. At the tabernacle, Moses couldn't go in because the presence of the Lord was there in such power. When the priests, when the Lord filled the tabernacle, they couldn't go in because the presence of the Lord was just so manifest, so clear, so tangible. They just couldn't go in. I don't know if you've ever experienced that by yourself or when you gather with other Christians and you, you, se you, sense, the, you sense the glory of the Lord. At times, that sense of, 
of just being able to reach out as if you could just touch God. Times whenever there's this profound sense of the holiness of God and yet the mercy of God. I know for me in those moments, there's that sense of the holiness of God and sometimes in the initial moments, I find it utterly terrifying. And were it not for the fact that in that same instantaneous moment, there is this sense, this profound sense of the love of God. Whenever the presence of the Lord is clear in our lives, we know all about it. It happened at the dedication of the tabernacle. It happened at the dedication of the temple that Solomon and those around him built. The presence of the Lord differentiated the people of Israel from other nations. They knew that that was their identity. That's why the tabernacle and the temple were so vitally important. It was the place where God dwelt in their midst. They knew that their uniqueness derived from the fact that God himself had chosen to live among this obscure people in the middle of nowhere. So, over 400 years later, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC and destroyed the temple, the impact on Israel was utterly profound. Not only because the, the city was crushed, the people were scattered, the temple was destroyed, their very understanding of who they were was obliterated. We are a people whom God lives among in his temple. And so they believed that the city of Jerusalem was unconquerable because the Lord dwelt in their midst. And suddenly they were in exile. The city was flattened. The temple was destroyed. And they were brought into exile in a foreign land. How can we sing the Lord's song? How can we sing a song? Because we don't even feel that we are the people of God anymore because the people of God are only the people of God if they have God in their midst. The Lord had warned the people through the prophet Ezekiel and other prophets. He had warned them not to run after other gods. He warned them that destruction loomed if they didn't turn from their wickedness and tragically, they didn't listen. The Lord left the temple. Destruction and exile followed. But Ezekiel went on to prophesy Israel's return from exile. And he was given this glorious vision of a new temple being built and the glory of the Lord returning to dwell among his people. And as we heard this morning, from Ezekiel 47, that vision carries echoes of Eden. A river is seen flowing from the south side of the altar, a symbol of life by the power of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a physical river. This is a spiritual river. Yes, it's painted in physical terms as, as prophecies often are. This prophecy of water flowing from the temple out of Jerusalem onto the doors, getting deeper and deeper, heading down to the Dead Sea flowing into the Dead Sea and bringing life to a dead body of water. 
And in that place, there is fruit and there is fish. And so this picture that the Lord was painting through Ezekiel was saying, you know what, there's going to be, there's going to be fishing nets lying from Engedi to Engeglim all the way along the Dead Sea, a place where no one has ever seen fish. People don't fish because it is dead and it is stagnant. And the vision is, you know what? There are going to be thousands of fishing nets drying along the edge of it. There's going to be fruit trees growing along. Why? Because the river of life is going to flow out of the temple in Jerusalem. Seventy years after their exile, the people of Israel started to return to their land. Although they still weren't in control, they were still under foreign oppression. One of the first things they did around 515 BC was to begin to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. It's recorded in Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra tells us that many of those who remembered the old, old temple wept when they saw the new temple being built. Perhaps it was because the new temple was less grand than the old one, or perhaps because this time there is no account of God demonstrating His presence. Isn't it amazing? The tabernacle was built with all of its finery. Bezalel was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do all the carvings. And when it was dedicated, the Spirit of the Lord came in power. So much so, people just couldn't go into the tabernacle. So profound and powerful was the power of God, the presence of God. Hundreds of years later, the temple is built and Solomon stands and the Lord comes in his presence and people fall on their faces because the, the tangible sense of the presence of God is so powerful. And they say, the God is good. God is good. His love endures forever. And then he inspires Nehemiah and Israel to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And they have this big service, a big dedication service. And what happens? There is no account of God returning to his temple. And so for hundreds of years, the people of Israel cry out, they pray, they long for the fact when God one day will return to his temple. When will God come back and dwell among his people again? The prophet Malachi, the last book in our Bible in the Old Testament, says the word of the Lord comes to him and he says, Look, I am sending my messenger and he'll prepare the way before me, says the Lord. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And then our scriptures are silent for 400 years. During a turbulent time in Israel history, in which the temple is severely damaged. And then, in 20 BC, Herod the Great, as he liked to be called, began a major development project of the temple and the surrounding areas. The main construction work took 10 years, finishing 
10 BC. But the decoration of the temple took 74 years, being finished only in 64 AD. Just six years before the Roman army entered Jerusalem and utterly destroyed it. At the end of the war between 66 and 70 AD, as the Roman Empire, that powerful military force, camped out and besieged Jerusalem, so much so there was mass starvation within the city. And then the Romans rolled in, and just as Jesus had said, they raised the temple to the ground. Can you imagine a building project nearly 80 years in the making? Finally, after 74 years of meticulous preparation and dedication, the temple is finished. And six years later, there's hardly a stone left standing. In fact, today, there's only one wall remaining. We know it as the Wailing Wall. The rest lies completely in ruins to this day. But during those years of decoration, a Jewish baby boy was born in Bethlehem. Matthew in his gospel identifies him as Jesus, the same name as Joshua, whose name means the Lord saves. Matthew identifies him as the long-awaited Messiah that the people have been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He identifies him as Emmanuel, God with us. John in his gospel identifies this man, Jesus, as the eternal Word made flesh who has pitched his tent among us, who has literally tabernacled among us. Then in John chapter 7, recording a moment 30 years later, this person, Jesus, now a man, walks into the temple to a feast of tabernacles to celebrate this annual week-long feast, a feast that is full of the symbolism of the presence of the Lord using the symbol of water. The people looked forward to a time when water would pour out of the temple in fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, becoming deeper and deeper and deeper and bringing life and fruitfulness and healing. For seven or eight days, the people gather in their thousands and they cry out, Come, Messiah, come! Finally come back to your temple. It's been sitting like this at this stage for over 500 years, we've been praying for your presence to come back. We've been fasting. We've been longing. We've been crying out for your presence to come back. Come, Messiah. Come, Lord. Come. And how does God enter his temple? He walks into it on two feet. Suddenly, 
the messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Who would have ever guessed that God would walk into the temple on two feet? On the last and greatest day of the feast, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Can you imagine the explosive nature of that cry? There are thousands of Jews following in the footsteps of their forefathers and forefathers who for hundreds of years have gathered for this Feast of Tabernacles. And they're not only reading Ezekiel 47, the passage that we've heard today, they visually enact it. The high priest goes down to the pool of Selam. That's what he would have done through all these years of the Feast of Tabernacles before the destruction of the temple. He would have gone down with a golden pitcher and, and filled it with water, and the people would have followed him, hungry and thirsty for the presence of God. In the south side of the altar, there was a golden funnel, and he poured the water into it. And the hope was, the prayer was, the cry was that the river of God would start to flow, the presence of God would be manifest, and it would bring life and healing and get deeper and deeper. Not a physical river, but a spiritual river. And the hope was that this liturgical reenactment with water and the high priest going in through a funnel on the south side of the altar into the ground would somehow spark off and catalyze the Lord returning to his temple. And the river of the Lord flowing and bringing fruitfulness and life wherever it goes. Do you remember Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Eighty years it had taken to build by the time it was destroyed. By the time of Jesus, they were 40, 50 years into the work. And Jesus said, knock this temple down and I will rebuild it in three days. Where is the temple of the Lord today? The temple of the Lord still walks on two feet. His name is Jesus. He is a man who lives in heaven. There is only one human being in heaven, and his name is Jesus Christ. Where is the temple of God on earth? Well, look around you. Because we are the body of Christ. And we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. John explains in John 7, when Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. And John's gospel is all about Jesus heading towards his glory. It's all about the fulfillment of all the expectations of creation and people coming to this point where the glory of the Lord is shown. 
And where is the glory of the Lord shown? It's in a man being crucified between two thieves on a cross on a hill just outside Jerusalem. And so, like the bronze snake being lifted up in the desert by Moses to bring forgiveness, to turn away the Lord's anger, to bring healing and life to the people of Israel, so too Jesus Christ is lifted up on a cross. That anyone who looks to him, everyone who believes in him, will have life in his name. For this is how God showed his love to the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. And as Christ was glorified on the cross and gives up his spirit, it is finished. The temple curtain was torn in two. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant in that moment of darkness is torn from top to bottom as if by the hands of God himself. The Spirit of God has been unleashed from the Holy of Holies. And so Paul says in writing to the Ephesians that we all have access to the Father by the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? The presence presence that walked around Eden, the presence of God that fell on the tabernacle, the the presence of God that fell on Solomon's temple, the presence of God that was longed for for hundreds of years throughout the Old Testament lives in you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. Where is the temple of the Lord? We are the temple of the Lord. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. At our invitation, the Lord has taken up residence in our lives to be in charge. That's what being a Christian means. Being a Christian means coming to the point of crisis where we say, you know what? By myself, I will make and I'm making a complete mess of this. Being a Christian is is saying, God, I want to be under new management. I want you to be in charge of my life. Because I believe that you living in me will make a much better job of it than I ever could. The Lord as he lives in us encourages us that we are now children of God. He reveals that we our brothers and sisters of Christ, and he reveals more and more the glory of Jesus to us, and he empowers us to be like him and to be witnesses in word and deed of the fact that we now are the place on earth where the Lord dwells. And that alone is what marks us out as different in this world.
It's not our buildings. It's not our knowledge. It's not that we're wonderfully good-looking or it's not wonderfully clever. There is only one thing that differentiates a Christian from someone else, and that is the presence of God in their lives. And the Lord will have his way, his loving way. He is making all things new. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A new cosmos will one day and again be like the holy of holies. That's why in Revelation and John's vision, the vision of heaven is a cube the length and the breadth and height are all the same length. Why? Because the holy of holies in the temple was a cubic space. It's not a literal picture. It's a symbolic picture. And the picture is this. Heaven is the holy of holies. And the new heaven and the new earth that God is bringing about is the holy of holies. It's the place where God dwells. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, it says in Revelation 22, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, and with a fresh crop each month, the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations." Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Bring on that day whenever the, the presence of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. We're the place where the Lord dwells on earth today. What a privilege. I think so often we lose track of that. I think so often, as Mark was saying, God, incidentally, we hadn't planned this, but Mark was saying in that verse that often we have a, we have a false guilt that, that denies in us or tries to convince in us, how, how could I be a place where a holy God lives? I think one of the things that keeps us from living most fully and powerfully and freely in the presence of God and living for His glory, lives full of joy and peace and love and power, is the fact that we allow ourselves to listen to that voice that says, I don't think God wants to live in you. Well, hear this, the Lord does live in you not because you're worthy and not because I'm worthy, but because Jesus Christ is worthy. And nothing we have ever son, son, said, said, or done, or thought, nothing in our past keeps us from the opportunity of living in the presence of God. It's not performance-related. It's because of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. 
He has made you enough. He has swept out the temple, and He has come to live in you, to live in us. I think sometimes we're we're perhaps concerned that the Lord will come to dwell in everyone else, but not in us. We have that doubt that it'll really happen to us. But in Luke 11, when the Lord is teaching His disciples how to pray, He says, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, everyone who knocks the door will be opened. The gift is for everyone. Sometimes I think we think, well, will it be a good thing if I say, Lord, you're in charge of my life, have your way, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Sometimes I think we get the jitters to think, well, will God do a good thing if I put him in charge? Will he call me into a life which will be a good thing? If I obey his call in my life, will it lead to fullness of life? And Jesus says, you've got a good father. If you ask for a fish, he doesn't give you a scorpion. If you ask for bread, he doesn't give you a stone. God only ever gives good gifts. What I'd love us to do is is just spend a moment afresh or for the first time inviting the Lord to come and fill us with His Holy Spirit. Christ died that you might be able to pray this prayer. That's, That's how important it is. Shall we stand together? Sometimes it's helpful just to put out your hands and put out your hands to the Lord and as we pray, come Holy Spirit, just want to encourage us that the Lord loves you. The Lord died for you. If you've never asked Him to come and take up residence, this morning's the morning to do it. Just say, come, come Lord Jesus. I put you in charge. I'll only make a mess of it myself. I'm only making a mess, so I put you in charge. Come, Lord, and dwell. Come and fulfill that vision, that river of life flowing. So, Father, we, we pray this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, and we pray as the temple of the Holy Spirit, show us your presence. Show us your power. Show us your goodness. Show us your love. Bring your healing. Father, I pray that you would bring healing. I pray, Lord, for physical healing in the name of Jesus Christ. I pray where there is sickness and weakness and illness that you would bring healing. Lord, where there is a sense of of false guilt, Lord, that you would bring reassurance. Lord, where there's there's real guilt in our lives, we know, Lord, that right now you're saying to us, I forgive you. I died that you may be forgiven. And we receive that forgiveness. We receive that fresh start. We receive that new life. And Lord, we want more of what you've won for us on the cross. So come, 
Lord Jesus Christ.